The title of my sermon is Parallel Kings. Parallel Kings. And the two kings we're going to look at are separated by about 2,200 years of history. But there are some amazing similarities between the two. The one was an Old Testament king, and the one was a king during the Reformation, really helping to establish the Reformation in England. And so we're going to look at two parallel kings. Uh, of course, we only have a limited amount of time, so it'll be a survey of both of them, but maybe it'll whet your appetite to look more fully at both of them. But the two kings, these parallel kings we're going to look at are Josiah and Edward VI. Josiah and Edward VI. So I'll try to, I like to, to have an outline and uh, because I'm talking about parallel kings, I tried to make my outline as parallel as possible between the two. So here's my two points from the outset. Number one, an examination of King Josiah. And then secondly, an examination of Edward VI. And we'll hope to fill in information uh, on both of these here in just a moment. It has been said rightly that history is his story. I like that. History is his story. One of the booklets that I have on my shelf is the providence of God in history. I think we'll see that as we look at these two men briefly here today. But uh, speaking of Josiah, we're going to look at him biblically here in just a few moments. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Maybe not as much with Edward VI, but I hope to give you, again, some sense of who he was as a king. I um, found this particular book. I wanted something to kind of bone up a bit on him and the specific information. And this is called The British Josiah, Edward VI, the Most Godly King of England. And uh, this little work, I think, is uh, well worth anyone wanting to see the overview of his life and impact. And uh, again, I trust that the things that we learn today will be a blessing and help to us. But we're going to begin here with an examination in the life of King Josiah. And I would ask you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. The blessing of what we're looking at concerning Josiah is that we have an inspired record. Yes, certainly biblical history, but God-given. And therefore, I want us to look at Josiah for a few moments. Before we examine our passage, there's a subject that I was thinking on. And uh, that subject is the idea of heroes. And certainly as believers, we're not going to be ones who exalt people. One of the blessings of scripture is that you always see the failings of man and then see the greatness and glory of Christ. And I think that's right to be that way. But I don't think it negates the fact that we can look at people in history, certainly with admiration because of who they were and what they did. And certainly Josiah is one of those biblical figures for me. I am thrilled Yet still, when I read the account of Josiah and how the Lord used him, God's grace to him. Now, speaking of parallel kings, what are we talking about in the sense of parallelism? Well, I went to Webster's Dictionary and I thought, yes, this is exactly what I'm trying to communicate considering the subject of Josiah and Edward. 
To be parallel is to be closely similar as in purpose and tendency. Closely similar as in purpose and tendency. And again, within an almost 2,200 year span between them, I believe between these two kings, we see that they are similar and that their purpose and tendency is also similar. And they were followers of the king of kings. And so um, there are some uh, amazing similarities between these two, and I want us to be able to see them here together. Now, as we examine King Josiah, before we look at the scripture, his name means one of two potential translations, one that you'll find often is Yahweh supports. Yahweh supports. But I also found could be translated Yahweh heals. And uh, certainly Josiah knew the support of the Lord, and at least there was a temporary healing of the nation under his reign. But as you know, the history of Israel and Judah, uh, it was up and down, and uh, Israel really went off the deep end after the kingdom separated, never having a good king. And then, of course, when it came to Judah, you had good kings and bad kings. And it's interesting that uh, the father of Josiah was a king named Ammon. And Ammon was a wicked and evil king. But the son he had, God's blessing was upon him. So I want us to look, first of all, at the testimony of King Josiah, his testimony, the inspired biblical testimony of who he was. Look at verses 1 and 2, 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 30 and 1 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. So Josiah, beginning at age eight, with those who were helping him, as uh, a king that young would need that, yet from early on, he followed the Lord. He did that which was right. And you see the connection here is not to his father Ammon, his earthly father, his true biological father, but that one in the line of fathers going back to David. Uh, David, who loved the Lord greatly, the great king of Israel. And as we'll see this afternoon, the sweet psalmist of Israel will be looking at one of David's psalms. Well, here he, we see truly that Josiah, by grace, by God's call of grace, was one who walked after the Lord. And uh, that's really all the testimony that is needed to know that he was a young man of God. But eight years old was when he came to power after the death of his father. Now he would have been born somewhere around, again, this is rounded a bit, but around 648 BC because his reign began eight years later in 640. So uh, the testimony of this one is that he was a godly young man. Now secondly, as we look at this brief biblical testimony, I want us to see Josiah's humility in exalting the word of God. His humility in exalting the word of God. We can never emphasize enough the importance of the word of God, the authority of the word of God. 
And of course, Israel and Judah in their history often disobeyed the clear teachings of Scripture. And God even said that if you obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there will be judgment. There will be cursing. And um, so Israel in particular, but then Judah back and forth between good kings and bad kings of you know, following the Lord and then going away from what they knew the Scriptures taught. But even from his youth, he was one who followed the Lord and he exalted the Word of God. And I want you to see in two places here in this same chapter how he did just that, how he exalted the Word of God. Because the Word of God is forever settled in heaven. I like the translation of one of the Psalms that your name and your word you have exalted above all things. And I think it's clear that that's how it is, the name of God, the name of the Lord, uh, Yahweh as we've talked about, and then the word of God itself being exalted. And uh, so let's look here first of all in verses 11 through 13 as we see his humility in exalting God's word. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the law, words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Ahiah a servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book, and to do according to all that which is written concerning us. What had happened was Hilkiah had discovered the book of the law. So you see the ignorance that had come about in Israel, the people of God not even realizing what it said. But this godly young king when the word of God was read, how he uh, reacted in humility and brokenness, he rent his clothes. And he wanted to see that now Judah would order themselves according to the word of God. If God had made it clear to them what they were to do, then Josiah wanted that to happen. He wanted God's word to be obeyed in his life and in the lives of the people. So you see that reaction, uh, that he had the right reaction to God's word being read. Now let's look at verses 18 through 20, which also show us what he did. But to the king of Judah, this is actually uh, a statement concerning what would happen because of his reaction to the word. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus ye shall say to him, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes, and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought word, brought the king word again. So what the prophetess in this case is saying concerning Josiah is that, yes, judgment is coming. But because of who you have been as a godly man, the way that you have loved the word of God and embraced it and sought to have the people obey God's word, then you are not going to see this uh, 
terrible catastrophe that is coming upon Judah. So Josiah was very near to the end of uh, them before their captivity that took place, as we read in the scriptures. But God blessed him, and one of the blessings that you see is his delight in God's word. If you look back to his father David and what David said in the Psalms, over and over he spoke about the preciousness of the word, how he delighted in the word, and the word uh, meant everything to him. And so you see that parallel between those two kings of their love for the Lord and service to the Lord. So God promised this judgment is not going to come upon you during your time. So with this testimony of a young man who for his life followed the Lord fully, didn't go to the right hand or to the left, for one who loved the word of God and exalted the word of God and put the word of God before the people and wanted it to be heard and obeyed, well, let's talk about his reformation just for a moment. And again, we have the inspired account of his reformation. Really, during this time, God was gracious to give both reformation and revival to Judah. But it wasn't long. Again, after his death, they were right back to where they were concerning how the evil kings would have led them. But there was that period of reformation and revival. And the best way to know that is to see it from the scriptures. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to read chapter 23, the first 20 verses. And with me as I read, I want you to contemplate the thoroughgoing reformation, the change that was brought about by this man of God, how he loved the Lord and was serious in pursuing that and uh, had such a... A tenacity, as it were, even toward uh, reformation and seeing things done rightly, and then again fixing the things that had been done that were in error. So uh, again, just follow with me as we read these words of uh, wonderful ministry from the uh, life of Josiah, beginning in verse one, chapter twenty-three. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. So here we have again that exaltation of God's word. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people stood to the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the planets, to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem unto the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and stamped it small to powder and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. 
and he brake down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought out all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba and brake down the high places of the gates that were in the entering of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places came not up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they did eat of the unleavened bread among their brethren. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter to pass through the fire of Molech. And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at their entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malak, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and break them down from thence, and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel hath builded for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. And he brake in pieces the images, and cut down the groves, and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place, he brake down, and burned the high place, and stamped it small to powder, and burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchers and burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Then he said, What title is that that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the sepulcher of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things that thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. And all the houses of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger, Josiah took away, and he did to them according to the acts that he had done in Bethel. And he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars, and burned men's bones upon them, and returned to Jerusalem." Wow. You talk about a thoroughgoing reformation of how he took on all this wickedness, this idolatry, this false religion. And that thoroughgoing reformation really led to a revival among God's people there in Judah. And so he was tireless in his pursuit of serving God. Now, as we saw from the initial passage that we read, God gave him 31 years to reign. But what happened to him, as the rest of the story is, and we will not look at it, he was killed in battle. Uh, he went to battle against uh, the king of Egypt, and he was pursuing the king of Egypt personally. The king of Egypt said, turn back from pursuing me. And he kept pursuing, and the archers shot him, and he died. But he was a man who was relentless 
and his service for God and his devotion to uh, Jehovah and to his word and how he exalted him and made the covenant with the, the people, renewed the covenant, stood according to the covenant himself, exalted God's word and made this thoroughgoing reformation. So he was quite a man of God. We can look to him and see how God used him. But uh, as uh, one of the French kings would have said during his day, after Josiah, I'm using paraphrasing, after Josiah, the flood. That's what happened. I mean, the uh, judgment of God came upon them and they went into captivity as God had prophesied because of their disobedience and their godlessness and going away from what God had commanded. So I'm impressed when I see this man of God and how he served the Lord. Now that's biblical history. We have the inspired account, but God, again, history is his story and he's continuing even to this very moment to work his will. But I want us to move into the area of church history for the rest of our time here together with a transition because in talking about the king, uh, the British Josiah Edward VI, we need to get up to where we're going. And I want to give a few words about Another king that's probably, well, let me ask, are folks here uh, fans of history? Do you all enjoy history well enough? At least I hope that you do. Well, obviously, as Josiah had a father, Ammon, uh, Edward VI had a father named Henry VIII. It's probably a name you've heard, Henry VIII. Henry VIII is probably known because he had so many wives, six of them, if you count them all. And uh, Henry was uh, an interesting man. I'm going to give you something from the very end of his life that was recorded. So that's pretty much the focus. So I'm not gonna focus much on Henry. Although Henry really still in the end of his life was given to Romanism, there were things that had come about during his reign, especially the word of God being available to the people in the Miles Coverdale edition that set the stage. And then the son that he had is the amazing young man that we're going to consider here in just a moment. But Henry VIII was no dummy. Let me say that, he was, he was no dummy. He was a very intelligent man. Uh, and so he uh, separated from, from Rome basically because he wanted an heir and thought he deserved an heir. He wanted a male heir upon the throne. Well, when he finally married a lady named Jane Seymour, he was given that heir that we know as the Tudor family. So Edward Tudor, that's the, the line, T-U-D-O-R, uh, became Edward VI. So I wanted to just give you a brief transition. At the end of Henry's life, uh, there is an event that's been recorded that I have here in front of me that I had not seen before. And so again, we have to take what is said and then obviously leave it to the Lord, but let me give you this information. A very close friend to Henry, actually like an advisor, was Sir Anthony Denny, Sir Anthony Denny. And here's what Denny said to Henry VIII on his deathbed. I beseech your majesty to prepare yourself for death and to consider the sins of your life past. There was a pause. Then Henry replied calmly, Quote, the mercy of Christ is able to pardon all my sins, though they were greater than they be. 
when asked, this is when Henry was asked if he desired to confer with any learned man, the king asked for, and I'm glad for the choice he made, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was a great friend to the Reformation and uh, a Protestant as well. So this was a question that had been posed to him about 11 o'clock at night on his deathbed. At midnight, Thomas Cranmer arrived. By then, Henry was speechless, so his condition was deteriorating very, very quickly. And he stretched out his hand to Thomas Cranmer, who held it fast. And Cranmer pleaded with Henry to give him some sign that he was trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. The king gripped Cranmer's hand tightly. As his hold relaxed, he sank into unconsciousness. This could be another case of salvation comparable to that of the thief on the cross, but only God knows. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, January 28, 1547, Edward Tudor became Edward VI, King of England. So now, in transition to point two, I want us to look at an examination of King Edward VI. King Edward VI was born in 1537. He was the child of Henry VIII, King Henry VIII, and his wife, Jane Seymour. And so, again, history records for us, uh, not inspired history, but history nonetheless, things about this king. Now, he was called the British Josiah for a reason, and we're going to see how he governed. Now, do you remember how old Josiah was when he came to the throne? He was eight years old. Obviously, an eight-year-old is not doing, you know, all the uh, reigning and, uh, you know, all that goes with the kingship. There were those around him to support him, obviously. But uh, this is important to know that when Edward came to the throne, he was nine years old, so a whole year older when King Henry VIII died, he was nine years old when he was pronounced King of England. Now, what about his testimony? What about the testimony? Well, we have to go to history of what's recorded to tell us about uh, Edward VI, but let me do this. There was a man in England, he was an Italian, uh, a learned man, scholar, who had, was coming from Scotland through England and going back to Italy, and he was given an interview with the very young King Edward. And here's what history records. He says, as he left, um, he has left a beautiful testimony respecting England's youthful monarch. So here's what this Italian, his name is Cordano, not a man I'm familiar with, but history records this from the writings of Edward VI. Here's what it said. All the graces are combined in him. That's Edward. He possesses the knowledge of many languages while yet a child. In addition to English, his native tongue, he is well acquainted both with Latin and French, nor is he ignorant of the Greek, Latin, Italian, and Spanish, and perhaps others. He was also acquainted with the principles of natural philosophy and with music. He played the lute well. A beautiful specimen of mortality, his seriousness manifested royal majesty. His disposition was suitable to his exalted rank. In sum, the young land was so educated, possessed such abilities, and caused such expectations that he appeared to be a miracle. 
This is not said as mere rhetorical expressions, nor does it exceed the truth, but in fact falls far short of it. So this amazing young man from his youth was like Josiah, one who sought the Lord. And remember, the battle that was going on at the time of the Reformation was Rome continuing to, um, to impose their will upon the world. And that's why the, Revela the uh, Reformation was so revolutionary of what happened, the change that came about. And realize this morning, dear friends, that as we sit here today, we are carrying on the Protestant Reformation. We are a part of what happened all those years ago. God has blessed to continue. And as I conclude this, there's one other name that deserves more time that I'm going to give him today, but a part of how blessed we are as the people of God. So a second aspect of his testimony, now this came from Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was the archbishop. He was a Protestant. He was a godly man. And the man who was given as the real uh, tutor, I guess you could say, not tutor as a name, but tutor, T-U-T-O-R, uh, was a man named John Check, uh, a godly man, a Protestant, a scholar. And in one meeting after Edward, as a young man, was giving defense of himself, Cranmer came in to John Check, took him in a side room and said this, Ah, Master Check, you may be glad all the days of your life that you have such a, such a scholar, sorry, for Edward hath more divinity in his little finger than we have in our whole bodies. So this is quite a change. This is unbelievable because of the history of Romanism and their oppression and then the way God was working this young man, even as a child. That's the thing that I see in Edward, the maturity beyond his years. I mean, just like uh, Cordano said, it's almost like a miracle of what God had established. But uh, we'll see too in a few moments that that same person that I'm leaving nameless right now made a prayer for such a person as Edward VI and the difference that he made. So his testimony is clear from his youth, he was a man of God. Secondly, now this is the parallelism. Remember with Josiah, we saw his testimony. Now with Edward, we see his testimony. Secondly, we're going to see Edward's humility in exalting the word of God. Now we saw it what happened in the life of Josiah and the life of Judah. Let's see how it took place in the life of Edward VI. And this is at the preparation for his coronation. Now remember, this nine-year-old is going to be coronated as king, and that was led by Thomas Cranmer. Listen to these words from history concerning one of the impacts that actually, unless things have changed, now I did not see the coronation of King Charles, so I don't know all that happened, and I know the problems that exist worldwide when it comes to biblical Protestantism, but here we go. As the preparations were being made for the coronation procession, the piety of the youthful Edward was shown in an incident that is worthy remembering. John Bale is the one who gives this information, relates upon the authority of credible witnesses that when three sores were brought to be carried in the procession as emblematic of his three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Wales, the king said, there is yet one wanting. So they're kind of like, wait a minute, you know, there's three kingdoms, three swords, there's yet one wanting. So the nobles inquired what it was. He answered, the Bible. Then he added, that book is the sword of the Spirit, and to be preferred before these swords. That ought in all right to govern us, 
who use them for the people's safety by God's appointment. Without that sword of the Spirit, of course, we are nothing, Edward said. We can do nothing. We have not power. From the Bible, we are what we are this day. For it, from it, sorry, from it, we receive whatsoever it is that we at present do assume. He that rules without it is not to be called God's minister or king. Under the Bible, the word of God, we ought to live, to fight, to govern the people, and to perform all our affairs. From it alone, we obtain all power, virtue, grace, salvation, and whatsoever we have of divine strength. Isn't that a change in the history that we read concerning leaders that a young man would speak so highly? And as far as I know, for many uh, coronations beyond, and that's why I say I don't know about uh, King Charles, but the Bible was a part of the coronation because of what Edward had established that its authority is above these kingdoms. It is what we should exalt. So very, very uh, much a blessing when you see how God used him. Now, I want us to continue quickly about his reformation because we saw the thoroughgoing reformation of uh, Josiah. I want us to see the reformation of Edward. And there's something I've still been holding on to, which you may know, but it will be discussed here in just a moment before we finish. What about his reformation? What did he do concerning biblical Christianity, Protestantism in his time? Well, going back to his tutor, Sir John Check, here is what he said concerning Edward VI. Quote, with the Lord's blessing, Edward will prove such a king as neither to yield to Josiah in the maintenance of true religion, nor to Solomon in the management of the state, nor to David in the encouragement of godliness. And he goes on to say this, he has removed images from the churches. He has overthrown idolatry. He has abolished the mass and destroyed almost every kind of superstition. He has put forth by his authority an excellent form of common prayer, and he has published homilies to lessen ignorance of the uneducated ministers. And here is one of the important things of all the Reformation that we see that took place. Quote, the extended circulation of the Bible must ever be considered one of the principal glories of King Edward's reign. So the word of God being given to all people and its authority being obeyed throughout the land. Now this is really, really amazing, I think, when you see the parallelisms between these two kings, 2,200 years apart, how they follow the Lord so fully and so wholly. But here's one of the things I didn't tell you about King Edward. He was born in 1537. He died three months before his 16th birthday. Now this is pretty amazing to think about the things that we're reading. He also wrote a treatise against the primacy of the Pope that even the reformers, including John Calvin said, is a real jewel for the church as a, as, as a young man. So again, this is almost in the sense of a miracle. It's a blessing of God that he's given for one who stands upon the authority of the word of God and uh, was a true Protestant, a true Bible believer, uh, a young man of prayer and uh, one who loved the Lord with all of his heart. 
he died just before his 16th birthday. Now, I'm not into the what-ifs of history, I don't think, but that's one thing. Can I speculate for a moment what could have been? But that was not God's will. He died a young man, and then eventually uh, his sister Elizabeth became the one who was uh, to establish Protestantism, but we seldom in the history of England have probably ever seen anyone like him. He was considered the most godly leader in the history of England, still to this day, the most godly leader in the history of England. Now, here's that name I've been holding from the English Reformation that you know, and it will be a special blessing as we've talked about how the Word of God has been exalted, that William Tyndale, the great scholar, the great translator, gave us the work that gave you what you have here in your lap today. The work of that English man who was betrayed, who was murdered, and who by the betrayal that came to him was strangled and burned to death, said these words before he died. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, in, in, in part, that probably happened with Henry VIII to a point. But certainly that was a prayer that was answered in the life of Edward VI because of the thoroughgoing Reformation and the focus primarily on the Word of God. So a prayer that was answered by this one, William Tyndale, a martyr, a scholar, a translator. And again, what we have in our laps is because of that work from the Reformation period. So they are probably, in my opinion, the two most important people of the Reformation in England. Edward VI, though dying young, and then the, the martyred uh, Tyndale before that. I hear the running of air conditioning or heat. There's a point of silence. We've talked about two kings, haven't we? But isn't there yet one king that is above all kings that we should consider as we talk about these kings? Do you know that Josiah and Edward had only one king? King Jesus. That was their king. He was their king. One looking forward, one looking backward, and we as well, like Edward, look back to him. He is our king. And so I want us to conclude because these kings were godly kings that impacted our world. But again, they are not to be exalted above what they should be, and we should focus upon our king of kings. So I want us to go to Revelation. And it's interesting that our book that we're going to is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at three brief passages that, again, does what it should do for us as believers. We are here because of Christ. And again, I love history, and I love the ministry of Josiah, and I love the ministry of Edward VI, but we're not here because of them, ultimately. We're here because of Christ and what he has done for us. And so we need to exalt him to have our eyes upon Jesus, to turn our eyes upon Jesus by faith, to look full in his wonderful face, because then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So first, Revelation chapter 11, I'm chosen three passages that show us the excellency of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 11, let's look at verses 15 through 17. Revelation 11:15. 15. 
And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It is October, but does that make you think of the Hallelujah Chorus? Possibly as it does me every time I read those words, I continue. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned and is reigning forever and ever. Please turn quickly to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in conclusion, Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. I think it's interesting as the scripture records, kings bring their glory and honor into it. The people, the nations bring their glory and honor into it. But all that pales in comparison to the glory of the Lamb. And what a blessing to conclude with seeing the promise of life, eternal life, which is ours, and that heaven is heaven because of King Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the mercy and grace you've extended to us. We thank you for this history lesson, both from biblical history, the Old Testament scriptures, and from church history of two men who loved you and served you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But ultimately, Father, we thank you that these kings and the ones that we have spoken of bowed in humility to the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask, Father, again, in Jesus' name, that you would take these words from your word. Lord, impact our lives. Challenge us. Give us a greater love for Christ. Help us to love him with all of our soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. 
We thank you for all the blessing which are ours in Christ. And again, pray for your word to go forth with power. Lord, that may we hear it and obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.